a day after one of the deadliest attacks on Ukrainian civilians to date. Russia unleashes another airstrike in the same region. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, who saw for himself the horrific impact of such strikes, is profoundly shocked and condemns these killings. Plus, President Joe Biden plans to make the case in a speech to the American people on why he believes it's critical to continue providing aid for Ukraine. In his remarks, the president should maybe move a bit from the language that he's been using thus far, which we're in, to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Perhaps he needs to start saying we're in there for victory and show a specific light at the end of the tunnel. And later in the program, the group of seven world leaders is pushing for a ban on diamonds mined in Russia. Today is Friday, October 6th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Civilians were again the victims of another Russian missile attack Friday in the northeastern Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, a day after a strike in the same region killed dozens in one of the deadliest attacks in the war in months. I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kiev for an update on this latest attack and new information on Thursday's lethal strike on a cafeteria in a village in the Kharkiv region. Yeah, really another terrible attack uh, on the city of Kharkiv uh, in the city center. And yet it's just uh, really a terrible 24 hours for the Kharkiv region in general. For the moment, what we know uh, about this latest attack, that at least two people, unfortunately, were confirmed killed. And this including a child and his grandmother. And at least 30 people uh, are injured and half of them are hospitalized. The rescue Operation is still ongoing. Uh, we know from the official Kharkiv representatives, this attack was targeting civilian infrastructure and particularly this residential building. And Ukrainian officials have already called this recent attacks uh, in the region a genocide of the Ukrainian nation, while international allies uh, called this a war crime uh, on the civilians. We're learning more about yesterday's horrific attack, including that the death toll has risen and the UN is investigating. Uh, yes, exactly. Yan is to investigate this terrible attack that killed almost half of the village that uh, where this attack happened in the Kharkiv region. At this point, we have confirmation of 52 people killed. Uh, and what we know as well about this attack, that this particular cafeteria was uh, hosting uh, a memorial service for a fallen soldier organized by his family. And his son was also a Ukrainian soldier. He was also killed in this attack. Uh, and the family of, of this fallen Poland soldier was killed as well. This is one of the worst attacks since the beginning of the full-scale invasion, and three days of mourning were announced in the Kharkiv region. Also, in addition to all these horrible events happening in the Kharkiv region and the city of Kharkiv, Russian Federation yet launched another drone attack, uh, mostly on the south part of Ukraine, and uh, 33 drones were targeting Ukrainian cities, uh, while 25 were destroyed by the Ukrainian air. Defense. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. We thank you so much. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights has deployed a field team to investigate Thursday's attack when a missile slammed into that cafe and grocery store in the Ukrainian village of Hroza. Commission spokesperson Elizabeth Thrasell speaking to reporters in Geneva. Now, what is clear that is that the strike is one of the deadliest since the 24th of February 
2022. But of course, it is far from being the only one. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, who saw for himself the horrific impact of such strikes, is profoundly shocked and condemns these killings. He's deployed a field team to the site to speak to survivors and gather more information. Before the Russian invasion, the village's population was about 300. It's not clear how many residents were still living there, but it's clear that with the high number of people killed, everybody in this small community has been affected. Thursday's attack led to one of the biggest civilian death tolls in any single Russian strike. The appalling scenes from the village of Hrosa in the Kharkiv region of Ukraine underscore once again the terrible price civilians are paying 20 months after Russia's invasion. According to the local authorities, 52 people were killed when what appeared to be a Russian missile struck a cafe in the village where people had gathered for a wake. So far, our colleagues in the Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine have established the names of 35 people who were killed, and that's 19 women, 15 men, and an eight-year-old boy. Moscow denies deliberately targeting civilians, but many have been killed in attacks that have hit residential areas as well as energy, defense, port grain, and other facilities. U.S. future funding for Ukraine is up in the air as the Biden administration strategizes on how best to support Ukraine in its war against Russian invaders without a speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives to bring Ukraine aid packages to a vote. VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb reports. President Joe Biden meeting with his national security team to discuss the military aid situation for Ukraine. With the U.S. largely divided over funding to the war-torn Eastern European country, Biden plans to speak directly to the American people in a speech emphasizing that supporting Ukraine is the right thing to do and the best strategy for U.S. interest. It is the right thing to do, analysts say, because Russia violated Ukraine's sovereignty as guaranteed under international law. And because Russia broke its own agreement with Ukraine made in the 1990s, when Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in return for assurances that Russia would respect its independence and protect it from nuclear attacks. Colin Cleary is an adjunct professor of political science at George Washington University. So they're violating the essence of agreements that they've made, and that's very dangerous. That means what is the nature of international relations? Agreements are not valid. Principles of the UN Charter are not valid. We're left with sort of the law of the jungle. And it's in U.S. interest, officials say, because an expansion beyond Ukraine into Poland would obligate U.S. forces to defend Warsaw and spark a third world war. Officials say they are preventing that scenario with U.S. military aid. A whopping $48 billion so far, a sticker shock number to the average American, but less than 5% of the U.S. military's budget. Instead of fighting over aid amounts in the short term, former officials say the U.S. needs to think long term. Retired General Frank McKenzie is the former commander of U.S. Central Command. This is going to be a long war. Uh, we should maybe prepare now for another year of this fighting, and we should do the things that we can do to ensure that the next time the Ukrainians launch an offensive, they're going to be even better prepared than they were now. The Pentagon can provide Ukraine up to $5.4 billion more in military aid under the Presidential Drawdown Authority, 
which allows the Pentagon to take from its own stockpiles. There's $1.6 billion left to replenish the Pentagon's weapons stockpiles and no money left to provide Ukraine with long-term security needs under the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder. We have enough funding to last for a bit longer, um, you know, from a Department of Defense standpoint. And you'll see this next week at the UDCG. Secretary Austin remains singularly focused on making sure that we're working with Ukraine and our allies and partners to get what they need to be successful on the battlefield. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin will host another Ukraine defense contact group for Ukraine's allies in Brussels next Wednesday. Carla Babb, VOA News. The Pentagon. Speaking to media on the sidelines of a summit of the European political community in Spain Thursday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was asked about his country's readiness if the U.S. reduces support for Ukraine. The situation with the United States is dangerous. Yes, it's a tough period for the United States and of course it's a tough period for Ukraine. But since first days of full-scale war, we didn't have easy time. So we are ready for any tough period. For us, it's very important. Europe and the United States also have to be ready to work together this period, not to lose this unity. And uh, so, and I think my, my signals today have been to European leaders that really United States supported Europe, supported Ukraine during a long time. It's true. And Europe supported Ukraine. But I think that is time now, time of challenges. Challenges when Europe has like a strong leader in the world. Europe is the strong leader in the world. Europe has now to support the United States. Yes, I'm, but I'm thankful to, to President, to Congress. I, I know that we have bipartisan support. I, I see these challenges, but I hope that, again, United States, Europe will be together with Ukraine, and I think we will, we will help to, to go out from this crisis. The dispute within the Republican majority in the U.S. House of Representatives has complicated budget negotiations and prompted President Biden to go from confidence that a deal will be made on Ukraine aid to openly expressing concern. Meanwhile, a day after pledging Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky their unwavering support, leaders of the European Union on Friday were looking at changes the bloc needs to make to welcome Ukraine and others as new members. Associated Press correspondent Charles de Ledesma reports. Leaders are assessing enlargement, as they call it, at an informal summit in southern Spain's Granada. Beyond Ukraine, several Western Balkan countries and Moldova are also knocking with increasing impatience at at their door. With Ukraine, they face one of their worst political headaches on a key commitment. How and when to welcome debt-laden and war-battered Ukraine into the European bloc. For a nation fighting for its very survival, that moment cannot come quick enough. For the bloc itself, that remains to be seen. I'm Charles de Ledesma. listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London.
Russian lawmakers will consider revoking the ratification of a global nuclear test ban. The statement Friday from Russia's parliament followed President Vladimir Putin's warning that Moscow could consider rescinding the ratification of the international pact banning nuclear tests since the United States has never ratified it. There are widespread concerns that Russia could move to resume nuclear tests to try to discourage the West from continuing to offer military support to Ukraine. Satellite images and photographs show Russia has withdrawn most of its Black Sea fleet from occupied Crimea in recent weeks following a series of successful Ukrainian attacks. My colleague Kim Lewis spoke with Hannah Shalest, senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis in Odessa, to discuss the significance of Russia's retreat from the Black Sea. There are two dimensions of uh, this act. One is psychological and in this case political as well for the Russian Federation and another way is purely military strategic. We need to understand that if we take the second, the military political, that is important because it demonstrates that Russia cannot guarantee proper air defense for Crimea and for their ships. So they need to be further from Ukrainian possible missiles or marine drones attacks. And considering that for many months, as Russia talked, that Sevastopol is the second uh, most protected city after Moscow in Russia, you understand that these myths is debunked uh, uh, very easily. And that is not good for the uh, Russian military leadership. However, it would not influence attacks uh, against uh, Ukraine, especially the South, because Russians are using, first of all, uh, a lot of missiles from their ships that are not in the ports, but somewhere around the Black Sea. And they're using a lot of the attacks from the airplanes from Caspian Sea. So that is uh, much further than Crimea. So in this case, it would definitely have the psychological effect that they are not able to protect uh, their own armed forces and their own fleet in Crimea, especially after Ukraine managed to destroy several of them. But at the same time, to say that it would have significant change for the military stance, I would not be that optimistic. And also, when you look at Ukraine's Black Sea Offensive, they were aiming to secure a number of important objectives. Number one, they were hoping to end the naval blockade of its ports and to disrupt the resupply of Putin's army in southern Ukraine. What will be Russia's next move? You know, for Russia, the next move is just intensification of the attacks against the civilian infrastructure. That's exactly what we see in the times when they are becoming weaker. And uh, uh, you can easily follow it with the attacks against the grain terminals and other port infrastructures, not only around Odessa, but also Ismail, that is the entrance to the Danube, to other ports. And they're doing it exactly with the idea, if we cannot just blockade you, why not to disrupt your export? But at the same time, they are also intensifying just purely civilian objects like today in Kupiansk on the north, because they need to bring the fear. And the third, they will be intensifying the attacks against the energy infrastructure because we are coming to autumn and uh, the same pattern as the last year that they need to destroy electrical system, the energy supply for Ukraine, hoping that neither Ukrainian economy would be able to work nor Ukrainian people will uh, be ready to uh, survive and hence would influence uh, the government. It's very like, you know, I would say ill-made logic 
Republic. But when you hear the statements from the Russian leadership, you understand that, unfortunately, they are following this logic. And today's statement of Mr. Putin that Odessa is Russian city, considering how fiercely Odessa is fighting against any possible Russian influence or presence here, is demonstrating that, unfortunately, Russian leadership, even after 19 months of war, are not perceiving information with logic and uh, objectively. Yes, and also in another aspect of this, the United Kingdom's government cautions that Russia may use sea mines to target civilian shipping in the Black Sea. Is this a serious concern and how should this be handled? That is the serious concern because let's uh, remember where everything started when the war, full-fledged war, started uh, last year. First thing Russians did, they threw approximately 400 I see mines, that is these huge like balloons, yep, uh, mines. They just allowed them to flow in the Black Sea. And from time to time, they are either exploding near the shores. For example, near my summer house, which is on the beach just recently, a few of them exploded after the storm. We also heard about such incidents at the Bulgarian shore or Romanian shore, or even in Bosphorus, several of them being intercepted. So uh, they are already there. Plus, after Russians uh, exploded Kahovka Dam, Kahovka Dam was heavily mined with the landmines, and many of them also came with waters to the shores in Romania and in Ukraine. Just today, we heard that one of the Turkish ships being uh, damaged because it colluded, how you pronounce this word, with the mine uh, uh, near the Danube entrance. So even now, this threat exists, but probably not that much in mass. If now, Russia would come and throw even more of these types of the mines, considering that Ukraine doesn't have any mine sweepers. Uh, we had one, it was destroyed. Romanian mine sweeper uh, also was destroyed because of the collusion with the mine with the Russian mine a few months ago. They just purchased two new mine sweepers, but they're not still in the Black Sea. That would be a quite a significant uh, challenge and threat for the civilian navigation. Hannah Celeste, senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis in Odessa, speaking with my colleague Kim Lewis. Polygraph Info, a fact-checking website produced by Voice of America says fake recruitment leaflets have promised U.S. students debt relief if they join Ukraine's defense. The latest Russian disinformation efforts on X, formerly Twitter, include a fake recruitment campaign attributed to the U.S. and Ukrainian governments. As part of this effort, ex-users shared an alleged recruitment leaflet urging students in the U.S. to go fight in Ukraine. The leaflet, bearing the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry's emblem and a U.S. phone number, shows a young person sitting on the floor, back to a wall, with his arms crossed and head down. It is captioned, How to pay off your student loans? Join the International Legion for the Defense of Ukraine. The alleged advertisement promises international volunteer status, medical insurance, and monthly payments. Some verified X accounts reposted the image while repeating the Russian disinformation line that economic hardship is enticing American citizens to go fight and die in Ukraine. Verified X user Russian Monitor shared the image and wrote, 
As the meat grinding continues in Ukraine, with an intended massive losses for the Ukrainian military and its NATO mercenaries, the U.S. has launched an indirect recruitment campaign amongst students, urging them to pay their student loan by joining the Ukrainian army as an alternative. That claim, and others like it posted on X, are false. Research shows that the flyer is fake. There is no evidence the U.S. or Ukrainian governments have attempted to recruit U.S.-based students to serve in or alongside Ukrainian military forces. The image of the fake leaflet originated from the Telegram account of Yevgeny Podlubny, a sanctioned Russian war propagandist who did not provide a source or location for the picture. Polygraph Info is a fact-checking website produced by Voice of America. The website serves as a resource for verifying the increasing volume of disinformation and misinformation being distributed and shared globally. The G7 group of rich nations is pushing for a ban on diamonds mined in Russia, the world's biggest producer, following Moscow's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. As Henry Ridgewell reports, it will be difficult to stop Russian diamonds from entering the global market, which is worth about $87 billion a year. About a third of the world's diamonds are mined in Russia by the state-owned company Alrosa, profiting the Kremlin by more than $1 billion annually. At the May G7 summit, members discussed imposing a ban on Russian diamonds. Enforcing it won't be easy, though. Almost all of the world's diamonds are cut and polished in the city of Surat in India. In the case of Russian rough diamonds, if they're polished in India, from the standpoint of American regulations, those are Indian uh, uh, diamonds. And because of that, they're no longer Russian. The Kimberley process, enacted in 2000, introduced traceability for uncut diamonds to prevent the profits from fueling conflict. But it doesn't apply to polished diamonds, and the system is flawed, says Golan. The question was, how does the Kimberley process address a parcel that will have rough diamonds from multiple origins? And the solution was, let's just put down mixed. So now if you have a parcel that is entirely uh, Russian diamonds, but one diamond in it comes from another country, now it's, it's a mixed parcel. Not everyone supports the proposed ban. A G7 delegation travelled to India last week to seek its cooperation. But New Delhi is sceptical, says Golan. First of all, without Alrosa's production, they're going to be losing a third of the global production coming in. Secondly, they don't want to, they don't want to join the, uh, India in general, does not want to join sanctions on Russia because they're... Uh, global uh, pol politics are different than those of the United States and Europe. The European Union in May outlined plans for a global tracing and enforcement system to cut Russia out of the market from 2024. Russian diamonds are not forever. Under the EU's plans, diamonds would be issued with a blockchain-protected certificate of origin that could be inspected at trading hubs like Antwerp in Belgium. However, some fear the system could backfire. 
probably they will not pass through Antwerp anymore. This, this large trade will just move to Dubai and from Dubai to India or directly to India. Typically countries, yes, that will not and probably never impose sanctions on Russia. Other industry players are pushing for a less technological, trust-based certification system which would make compliance easier for smaller diamond mines in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Details of the G7 proposals are expected to be outlined in the coming weeks. Henry Ridgewell, VOA News, London. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.